0: Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We are in our second Advent series. We're kind of looking at some of the different aspects of this special time of the season. And before we get to the text today, I kind of want to set the scene for where we're going to be today. So it was just another day for this particular man. His tribe was on the schedule to serve at this point. So they had their Monday morning meeting and he drew the short stick. And so he had to go inside and do the inside work so at the appointed hour he he gathered the incense rods he gathered the other things and he went into the temple there in jerusalem and he started his duties before god he was faithful he believed god's promises but it had been over 400 years since god had spoken and so he like many of us faithful people was there but wasn't really expecting much And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel told him, you and your wife are going to have a baby, a boy. Name him John. He is the promised Elijah. You know, you're a priest, the one Malachi talked about. And then the angel quotes Malachi 4-6 to him to make sure he gets it. And today what we're going to do is we're going to get to know this baby a little bit. Now, if you're visiting with us today, We've spent the fall in the book of Malachi, the Old Testament book that kind of makes a transition to the New Testament. So I'm going to be pointing out several connections between what we're going to talk about today and what's happened in Malachi. That's why you're going to hear that a lot. And if you'll notice at the bottom on page nine, we've got five things to go through. You might be a little like, "Uh uh-oh, this could be long. It's not, we're going to do this very briefly, but we are going to touch on every one of those texts listed there. Only a couple of them are printed in your bulletin. The rest of them will be behind me on slides. But if you'd like to uh, follow along on a couple of the texts that are found on page 10 in your order of worship, or you're also welcome to use the Bibles there on the chairs. Uh, The text from John is found on page 833, and the text from Luke is found on page 804. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible at home, please take that blue Bible there in front of you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. But for now, let's go to God's word together. We'll be reading from John 1 and then Luke chapter 1, again, found on page 10 in your order of worship. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Let's pray together. No, gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to condescend to us in speech that we might know you and that we might know ourselves. And so we pray, Lord, that your word once again would convict us, show us our sin, our selfishness, our failures, and then show us again the beauty of the gospel of Jesus that our hearts might be enthralled and healed pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so today we're going to kind of walk through some of these texts together. And the main thing we're going to see is that God has a plan, that he has planned his work, and now he's working his plan. John the Baptist is coming, preparing the way for Jesus, for God himself. And so let's spend a little bit of time today getting to know this guy named John the Baptist. The first thing I want you to notice about this guy is John the Baptist is a prophet. Starts out in the text that we read here. Zechariah is a priest. He has his baby boy. He hasn't been able to speak for months, if you know the story. And his mouth is opened up and he gives praise to God. And then he turns and looks at his infant son. And he says right there, and you, child. I mean, it's impossible for me to overstate his emotions here. This is not only him speaking as a dad. This is not only him speaking under inspiration, as amazing as that is. This is Zechariah, the priest who knows the Old Testament, seeing his son and realizing this boy is the promised Elijah. He has come. Verse 76, that means that he's going to prepare the way for God himself. Verse 77, that means he's going to give knowledge of salvation, he says. He rejoices. This kid is going to come and give knowledge of salvation. We over-spiritualize that word after hearing it so often in church world. It simply means rescue. They were looking for rescue. I want you to think about someone who's drowning. They don't want you to come up to them in a boat as they're flopping along and start explaining the principles of buoyancy to them, do they? No, they want you to throw them a life jacket, throw them a life preserver, give them a rope, something, right? And so, too, the people in John's time were not looking for spiritual education. They were not looking for moral improvement through a wonderful moral leader to come. They were not looking for a great teacher. They were looking for help. So God said, I'm coming, I'm going to send help. When he said knowledge of salvation, they knew what it meant. He's going to send help. He's going to show us how to get help. And then he says in verse 78, that it's going to, the sunrise shall visit us from on high which is a weird thing to say, but if you remember Malachi 4.2 from last week, where God promises to those who love Him, He says, The Son of Righteousness shall rise on you with healing in its wings. See, Zechariah the priest knows his Old Testament. He rejoices that God is doing what He said He would do, and He sees the proof in His own Son. His son John is the last of the Old Testament prophets the one who will sum up all the Old Testament prophets, preparing the way for the great prophet himself, Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist is a prophet. The next thing we see is that John the Baptist is a witness. Look with me at John chapter 1, verse 6-7. through 7. It says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. I love how verse 7 is redundant. Did you catch that? It said, he's a witness to bear witness. This is what linguists call a Hebraism because they're taking Hebrew grammar and they're using Greek words, but not Greek grammar. Okay? And what I mean by this is I've said this before, but this is a quick refresher. So we have like quick, quicker, quickest, right? That's how we express superlative in English. They don't do that in Hebrew. What they have in Hebrew is they just repeat the word. So they'll say, uh, being quick, he was quick. And that means quicker. And they'll say, quickly, he was really quick. That means he was quickest. And so what they're saying here about John the Baptist is he is the most witnessy witness that who could ever come and witness. He is really witnessy. He's coming. And what's great about that is see the heart of your God in that right there. He wants his people to believe. To believe what? That God will come and give the leaping, Joy we saw last week in Malachi four two. Remember the metaphor? God says, "I'm going to give you the kind of joy that a calf has when you release it from the stall and it starts jumping around the barnyard." And us not being ranchers, mostly are like, uh, "That sounds cute, okay." But most of us have seen dogs, and, yet, and if you have a puppy or an older dog, you know how sometimes they get what we call in our house the zoomies, right out of nowhere. They just start running because they're just so happy. That's what God says here. I'm going to give you so much joy, my people are going to be filled with the zoomies. And he's looking at his son saying, this is the guy who starts that process. God is going to bring all of that to pass. And John testifies to it. So he's a witness. So as a witness, what is his testimony? Well, look with me at John chapter one, verses 29 through 32 it says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. See, John the Baptist knew what he was. He's the pointer. There he is. And he knew who Jesus was, and he knew what Jesus was. Instead of the lambs repeatedly sacrificed over and over again to postpone judgment yet one more year, John looks and says, there's the guy who will eradicate that whole system. He will come and he will take away sin instead of merely postponing judgment. Here's the lamb from God himself who will bring forgiveness. And even in that little description, do you see what we get right there? We get the very purpose of of Jesus Christ himself. He was born to die. The purpose of the incarnation is so that there can be a crucifixion. Jesus came to voluntarily put himself on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. And John points to him and says, there he is. There's your salvation. He came to draw attention to Jesus and to Jesus' work, especially... In baptizing is how John helped reveal Jesus, which gives us the next aspect about John the Baptist. He is a baptizer. Let's look together at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says this, says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John the Baptist is out there splashing water all over people. Okay, the Greek word baptize means to baptize. It's used in context where it's clearly immersed and it's used in context where it's clearly not immersed. So it means to baptize. just want to let you know that. So he's out there getting people wet somehow. And he looks up in the line and he sees Jesus. He's like, hold up. You got this backwards, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says that weird thing, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And we have to pause at this point and ask some serious questions because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Why is Jesus coming to get baptized by John? Does Jesus need to repent? What's going on here? Well, from the view of Western individualism, no. No. Jesus did not need to repent. But from the view of ancient Near East, more communalism, not communism, don't hear what I'm not saying, more communalism, yes, he did need to repent. And by the way, what I just said, it's very often people forcing a modern individualistic Western mentality onto scripture that causes people to struggle with infant baptism. That's that's for free, you can have that for free. So anyway, so, How did Jesus need to repent? Well, the nation of Israel, the collective people of God needed to repent. As a people, as a nation, they were out of sorts with their creator. They were living in covenant disobedience. They were clearly under the curses of the covenant. They were not following the ways they were supposed to. They needed to repent. And John's baptism was about recognizing that the nation of Israel, the people, needed to repent. And so Jesus, as a circumcised Jewish man, a part of that covenant community, a member of that nation, he joins them in solidarity because that nation needs to repent. And so he does it. I mean, theologically, what we know that makes this even more profound, what John didn't know is that the rest of the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the newer and truer Israel himself. That he was baptized into water just like Israel was baptized into the Red Sea. And immediately after their baptism, they went off into the wilderness for temptation and they failed utterly. Jesus, right after his baptism, will go off into the wilderness for temptation and pass magnificently where Israel failed. So here's what's going on here. I grew up in the 80s playing video games then, so like the Atari system is like the best. I'll never get over how good the the Atari was. I used to, check this out, okay? I remember, I I used to, I'm gonna date myself here. I would take my beanbag chair and I would put it on my (laughs) waterbed. I told you I'm dating myself. And I would sit on it, so I had this motion. I was like, I was like VR before VR was a thing, right? So I'd be, I'd be playing my video games. And after you died three times, the game, the game was over. There was no save points or anything. So what you had to do is you had to walk up. And on the Atari, it was a little switch. The, next, the rich kids had the Nintendo thing, and it had a big red button on it. Anyway, you push the big red button to start the game over again. It's a reset button. I failed. It's over. Let me try again. And what's going on here is Jesus is the reset button for Israel. And John the Baptist points to his nation and says, y'all need to push the big red button, and there it is. It's that guy. Getting John's baptism of repentance starts that process of pushing the button. But there's something else going on here It's really profound that I didn't get until just this week studying this. Jesus submits to John's baptism because John is a prophet of the Lord. Those who do the Father's will obey the prophets. If John was a prophet of the Lord, that means he was speaking with the Father's authority, and so Jesus is going to do what the Father says and get this baptism. By Jesus doing this, he confirms John is a real prophet who deserves, should be, obeyed. And even as a real prophet, the next thing we see about John the Baptist is that he is a questioner. Look with me at Matthew 11, verses 2 through 5. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So prison creates doubts, understandably. John finds himself behind bars and with questions. And note that Jesus treats his questions as fair, as legitimate, as not out of bounds. I mean, even Elijah himself, if you know the story, had amazing moments of being used by God, then moments of incredible fear where he doubted God could do anything for him, and then other moments of being used by God. So John's following this Elijah pattern very well here, being another Elijah. And so Jesus answers his doubts, essentially saying, hey, I'm doing what the prophets like you said the Messiah would do. Go back and read your Old Testament, John. It'll be okay. See, Jesus answers his doubts not with chiding, but with the truth. Because doubts aren't bad. They're normal. Say that again. Doubts aren't bad. They're normal. I love how Christian scholar Os Guinness puts it in his book called Doubt. He says this. He says, doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and faith. And unbelief see Jesus is incredibly tender with doubting John the Baptist and he's tender with your doubts too he's tender with your doubts too doubts are okay even someone as great as John the Baptist who had literally met the person of Jesus face to face in the flesh even he had doubts Oh, I hope you can see that Sycamore is a safe place to be honest about your doubts and to work through them with other doubters. And we know that Jesus was tender with John because he commends him. Look with me at Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says this about John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See, Jesus says John is a fierce, strong Old Testament prophet. John was in prison, in fact, because he was so firm against the prevailing opinions of the public and the officials of his day. In fact, John was more than a prophet. If you remember, he was the subject of prophecy because he was prophesied, Malachi 3.1, Malachi 4.5, I'm going to send this person to you. So he's the object of prophecy, and he's a prophet himself. And even in all that greatness, all that uniqueness, did you catch what Jesus said? Christians are greater than John. Now, I know you don't believe that as soon as you hear it, like, whatever, I know, me too. But let's try to take it seriously, okay? How are Christians greater than John? Well, we get more of Jesus than John did. uh, John knew Jesus as the one who would take away sin, but he did not know how or how costly or how extreme, if you'll allow me to use the word. John had no idea about the crucifixion, no idea about the resurrection, No idea about this thing called the church. No idea about our union with Christ through both faith and trust. We do. And that makes us even greater than John, even more privileges than John the Baptist had. Which gets us to our last and most important thing about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the Christ. This is the most profound part. He's not the Christ. It's the Greek word for Messiah, Messiah. It means rescuer. Look with me at John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is on your page 10 if you want to look there. It says this, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. There's a lot going on here. First of all, John is not the Christ, only his witness Jesus was in the world, it tells us. That's easy. We've seen that. He was there. He was talking to people. But then it says, Jesus made the world. Did you catch that? It says Jesus made the world, and then it says the world did not recognize him. Those are some pretty big claims. Again, the Bible does not claim that Jesus is a great teacher. The Bible does not claim that he was a spiritual instructor one I read this week someone called Jesus a spiritual pioneer I don't know what that means the Bible claims that Jesus is God himself even the very creator himself Jesus while he was alive with his own mouth claimed to be the creator God he claimed to be God himself This is why C.S. Lewis, the, the, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and other things, this is why he has this famous clip. You've probably heard it. You may not have known that he came up with it. He says, Jesus Christ was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He's not, oh, he's a great moral teacher. I just don't believe him. You don't get to say that. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or the Lord. His claims were too specific. I mean, again, Jesus claimed in the presence of others, with his own mouth, I'm the creator God. You may not believe that about Jesus, but it's not honest to pretend he didn't say it. And if he's not telling the truth about that, he's the worst sort of narcissist, isn't he? If he's not telling the truth when he says, I'm God, he's not the sort of person to be admired, is he? See, these claims are too significant for us just to brush them off. You have to deal with Jesus. You say, I don't believe it. He's a liar. Or You say, he's a crazy man. Or if he's telling the truth, he's the Lord. It gets even more profound in verses 11 through 13. Let's look at those now. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. See, Jesus came to his own. He came to the nation of Israel, but they did not receive him. They flat out rejected him, even killed him on the cross. But some did receive him. Some believed in his name. Back in Malachi 3.16, God treasured those who feared his name. In Malachi 4.2, he promised a healing sunrise for those who feared his name. And now we see those promises coming true in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus' name, when we fear Jesus' name, note what he gives us. He gives us the right, the privilege of being children of God. This is upsetting to many when you point this out, but it's right there in the text. The Bible is very clear. People don't get to call God Father without calling Jesus Savior and Lord. Our adoption by God happens only in Jesus. That's why it says right there, He gave them the right to become children of God in verse 12. Where he tells us in verse 13 what that looks like. He says, through being born of God. Not a literal redo of your birth. Not because we got ourselves all worked up and decided to be on team Jesus. But because we are actually made new by God. And that right there is the burning joy of Advent. That God is making all things new through Jesus Christ who came first as a baby to live out the life that we should have lived before such a holy God. And then he came to die the death that we absolutely should die before such a just God. But Jesus is also coming back again having been raised from the grave, a second advent to make all things new. And we wait for that in hope. And that's the burning joy of Advent, looking for that coming. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's Christianity. Let this holiday season be the one where it actually becomes real to you, where you can actually call God Father. If you have not yet done that, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrected Lord, as the crucified resurrected, creator God Himself. And don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have come to us to challenge us, to cut our hearts with Your Word, by conviction, by seeing our failures so that you can enthrall our hearts with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that even now, that those of us who do know you already, who rejoice to be called your children, that we would once again just jump in and swim in the pool of your grace, that we would be overwhelmed at your kindness and your goodness to us in Jesus, that we would worship you anew. And we pray, Lord, for those who do not know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, that you would be true to your promise that as he is lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. Even now, Lord, would you call people from death to life that they might confess and believe. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.